text for this morning will be Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. I want to read it for us now. This is the word of our holy God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been made known to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Would you pray with me, friends? God, would you open us to your word that we might hear it, rejoice in it, Respond to it rightly. That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, just a quick straw poll. Thumbs up, thumbs down, yay or nay. How many of you are pro-Thanksgiving people? All right, there's a few of you. Yeah. How many of you consider this to be the pre-game, you know, sort of the tailgating for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> You know, of all the holidays we have on the calendar, this one should remind you and me of who we are and why we're here. We give God thanks this week for all of his blessings. We remember in giving thanks to God that we're made by God, that we're saved by God, that we have been given a purpose to glorify God. So this morning, church, the Word of God is going to call us to remember why we exist. Why are we here? Paul's writing a letter to the church that is in and around Ephesus, and he's actually about to start a big prayer. But as Paul gets ready to pray in verse 1, he interrupts himself in the most Pauline of fashions, so that he can tell the Ephesians a few vital points of significance to remind them of the gospel and the church and our ultimate purpose. And then Paul actually gets to the prayer that he wants to pray in verse 14. So a sort of 13 
13-verse parenthetical self-interruption is what we have here. And if any of you watched the movie Up and saw the dog that said squirrel and was always distracted, right? That's kind of what we have here is Paul has his mind go somewhere and by the Holy Spirit, God inspires him to remind us of a few really good things and then he'll get to the prayer that he intended to get to. So today, if you want to take notes, be ready to find four points in this little section. Paul is going to show us something of the eternal plan of God. And as Paul explains the key truths of God's eternal plan, we're going to see a few things. I'm going to give us four things that you and I want to remember day by day by day as we live in the Christian life. So let's just jump right on in and get started. Point number one, readily suffer for the gospel. Readily suffer for the gospel. I could have said willingly here, but then I would not be alliterated like Eric was earlier in Sunday school. So readily suffer for the gospel. Look at verses 1 through 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf, on the behalf of you Gentiles, here he gets distracted, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly... Now, when verse 1 opens with a for this reason, Paul is telling us that he's going to be led to say what he's about to say. He's going to praise the Lord based on what we've seen in the truth, especially of chapter 2, but all the way through this book. We've already seen God's sovereign power at work in this book. We've seen the glory of God at work in this book. We've seen the power of God in our personal, individual salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we've seen the magnificent glory of God and the fact that God makes for himself one new people, one new nation from the Jews and from the Gentiles in Christ. That's in chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And this concept, this concept that God would reconcile you as an individual to himself and that God would build a new people for himself from individuals of all nations, that is something that is driving the Apostle Paul to praise God. But before he pronounces the praise, He's got a couple things he wants to help the church hear again so we can understand why the prayer that will be in verses 14 to 21 or so is so right. So Paul calls himself here a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. You guys might recall, if you know Paul's story, that Paul was arrested in the city of Jerusalem about five years before this letter was sent. You ever think about five straight years in prison for Paul? The scene was recorded for us. His arrest was recorded for us in Acts 21, 27 to 30. I just want to read it to you real quick. It's in Jerusalem. It says, when, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen in Trophimus, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian 
with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Now, there's actually no reason to believe that Paul violated the Jewish law or custom in any way by bringing a Gentile into the Jewish-only part of the temple grounds. There's no reason to think Paul really did that. But the accusation against Paul was enough to have a mob seize Paul, beat Paul, and try to kill Paul. And a Roman centurion caught wind of what was happening, and he arrested Paul. And that arrest of Paul led to multiple trials, multiple false accusations against Paul, a move from Jerusalem to Caesarea, a move from Caesarea to Rome, and it took five years of imprisonment for the apostle to make his way all the way to the city of Rome because Paul appealed to have his case heard by Caesar, the Roman emperor. And so when Paul's writing this letter, he's been under house arrest for a couple of years in Rome. He's been in prison for four-ish, maybe five years. And as a fascinating note, it was an Ephesian Gentile hanging out with Paul who was at the center of the original controversy. So, so Paul really can literally say, I am a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles in the city of Ephesus. But the real controversy that got Paul arrested and caused so much trouble between Paul and the Jews, it wasn't Ephesus. It was the fact that Paul preached a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul was preaching, inspired by God, that there is now in Christ, if you're saved, only one people of God with no ethnic distinctions or boundaries anymore. And the Jews hated that concept. And they wanted Paul dead for preaching it. By the way, in our world, there are people that are hating the concept of one people of God again. In verses 2 and 3, Paul hints to his readers about his story. He points out that he has been given a stewardship by God to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and not to Jews only. Remember at the end of chapter 2, uh, I told you that Paul spoke of us of being the one household of God, one family of God. Well, the word for, for stewardship here in chapter 3, it's a word that connects the ideas of house and law or house and rules. That's, that's what the Greek word for steward is actually made up of or stewardship is made up of. Paul is saying, I am a steward over a household. I am the one who keeps the rule of. I'm the one who keeps the law of. I'm the one who keeps the standard of the household God is building. You guys know what a steward is, right? I mean, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor was over there governing the city. If you're not a nerd, you don't know what I meant right there and that's okay. A steward would take care of things under the authority of the main leader. A steward was entrusted by the ruler over the household of the management, the running of the household economy, if you will. So Paul says, I'm a steward. I have a job. 
I have a job over the household of God, over at least part of the household of God. Paul says the mystery of God was made known to him by a revelation from God. And so his stewardship, his job is to share the message of the gospel. That's what Paul's job was, was to take the gospel, especially to the Gentiles. But before we look at the message Paul preaches, the message God revealed to Paul, I want us to stop here real quick and learn something from the status, from the station that Paul is currently in. Because Paul, a faithful servant of God, is in prison. Why? Because he shared the gospel. Paul never hid from the fact that being faithful to God got him a beating and an imprisonment. Paul was not ashamed of the fact that he suffered for Christ. Paul did not assume that hardship in this life in any way takes away from the truth of the gospel he proclaimed. Christian friends, will you believe me when I tell you that hurt and pain and hardship in your life has absolutely nothing to do with the truth of the gospel? If you hurt, that doesn't make the gospel more or less true. If you prosper, it does not make the gospel more or less true. Paul suffered for Jesus willingly. So Christians, we too need to readily suffer for the gospel. Be ready to suffer for the gospel. The world we live in is hard. Would you agree that that's true? Often? People in this world may attempt to hurt us. Governments and organizations may attempt to prevent us from worshiping the Lord. Google may try to make it so we can't post anything on YouTube anymore. People, agencies will try to make us stop obeying or believing the commands of God. Christians will face persecution in the world we live in. Paul went to jail for years because of a false accusation. Jesus was beaten and crucified for simply telling people who he is. How could you and I, who follow the Lord Jesus and the teachings of Paul, not face hardships too? You don't know when they're going to come. You don't know how they're going to come. But don't be so foolish as to assume they will never come. Instead, start now talking to God and prepare your heart to be ready. Ask God, God, make me ready so that I will stand when pain comes. Ask God to make you able to be faithful regardless of the hardships life throws your way, whether it's persecution or just the ugliness and vileness that can be in this world. Now, let's go forward and let's see what Paul's message was to communicate, and we'll find our second point. Point two. Ready for two? Good, good. I'm just making sure you're with me because I can't hear you at all. Rejoice in the revelation of the gospel. Rejoice in the revelation of the gospel. 
verses 4 through 6 read, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is now being as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul, as a steward in the household of God, he was given by God a revelation from God of the gospel that we now have recorded in the Scripture. Paul was given an insight by God into the big picture plan of God because you guys know, don't you, that God has been working out one single plan from before creation to its end, right? Does how Paul... Well, let's just go back. Paul can claim here he has genuine insight into what he calls the mystery of Christ. Why can he claim that? Because God himself showed Paul. And everything God showed Paul was his perfect revelation in keeping with everything he's already said that he was doing. Do you remember in an earlier message we talked about a mystery? And I told you that when, when Paul uses the word mystery here, it, it's not, he, he's not giving him an Agatha Christie novel. Right? He's not, this is not Poirot. This is not, this is not Miss Marple. Instead, when he says there's a mystery here, it's the idea that there is a truth that was present, it's hinted at, it's there in the Old Testament, but it wasn't understood by the people to whom it was originally told. God had made a great deal of the truth of his eternal plan clear in the Old Testament. It is there. But the people of the generations back in those years, they couldn't see what God was saying. It was only after Jesus came, only after the revelation of God came to men like Paul and Peter and James, it's only then that the church could look back over what God had previously said and they really understood the plan of God. As Paul says, the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is now being revealed, as it, as it, I can't speak, as it is now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You get it? In the Old Testament, did God ever say anything about the fact that he was going to build one great nation from all the peoples on earth through one sacrifice? Sure he did. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless every nation of the earth through one of your offspring. Did Abraham get it? Not really. Did the people who followed Abraham get it? Not completely. It's only when Jesus did it, they were like, oh, that's it. That's how you're going to do it. God said through Isaiah, there's going to be someone descended from King David who's going to become a king who the, the increase of his kingdom will never end. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How could that be done? With Jesus we go, oh, I see it. But what here, when Paul says there's a mystery, what mystery is he emphasizing? What's the mystery Paul has, has that God has revealed that Paul gets to preach? Paul says to us, this mystery 
is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There were clues all through the Old Testament to let us know God's plan was far bigger than one single nationality. But most people didn't see it. Once the work of Jesus is done, the Holy Spirit of God made it clear to the apostles and to the prophets, the authors of Holy Scripture, that God has always planned to build for himself one holy people, pulling them out of sinful humanity to make one brand new nation. Now, if you want to unpack the concept of God uniting the Jews and the Gentiles, first thing I would say is we preached about that for two weeks over the last two weeks. The messages from chapter 11 to tw- or from verse 11 to 22 of chapter 2. You could go back and listen to those again. In that section, we learned God did something wonderful in Christ. God saved both Jews and Gentiles in the same way. God brought these people groups who used to hate one another out of their original nationalities and shaped them together into one new unified nation. It was a new people of God. And the people who used to be separated are now made one if they are in Christ. And all divisions, all old grudges, all ethnic prejudices, all hostility has to be abolished as the one new people of God is formed. And and Paul here, here talks about the mystery three times he's going to emphasize the togetherness of the Jews and the Gentiles. He first says that they're fellow heirs. We're not divided as if we have separate families or separate households with separate inheritances. Instead, we all share in one inheritance. There is not a separate inheritance for the Jew and one for the Gentile. There is not a separate inheritance for Christians of any skin color on the one hand versus of some other skin color on another hand. There is not a different inheritance for Christian men as opposed to Christian women. We are all together inheritors of the of of the treasures that God has for his single people of God we are we are part of the one family of God with God as our father and we're also members of the same body this analogy gets even stronger how tightly connected we are to be have you ever noticed that no matter how hard they try your body parts do not get to have individualistic identities Your body parts don't get to demand to be parts of separate bodies. I am not in this body. Right? You're one person. At least I hope you are. Your body is made up of parts that all have to work together for your health. And the Jews and the Gentiles and the people of every ethnicity whatsoever are united in one body in Christ. Now, let's take the body illustration out for a spin. What do you call it when a body grows cells that try to attack other cells that are part of the body? It's cancer, right? That's cancer. We are one body. Let us never tolerate for one moment any little cluster of people in the body of Christ trying to separate from some other people group in the body of Christ or punish some other people group in the body of Christ simply because they are parts of different physical people groups on this earth. That is cancer. 
I could go on that, but I'll get in trouble. Finally, Paul says we're partakers of Christ. Get this. You and I, in our salvation, we are, again, partakers of Christ. When you're saved, God sees you. Now think about this. You know how dirty you've been at different times in your life, don't you? Anybody having any trouble believing that? Because you need to know that for this to be beautiful. When we are saved, God sees his saved children as having his very righteousness because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. By the way, if you're partakers of Christ, if it's Christ's righteousness you wear, God would never see us as separate people groups with one nationality better than another or one skin color superior to another. We get Jesus if you're in Christ, right? You get Jesus' perfection if you're in Christ. You are called by the name of Jesus if you're in Christ. You are forgiven by Jesus' one sacrifice if you're in Christ. And there is no such thing as a Jewish Jesus and a Gentile Jesus. There's no such thing as a white Jesus or a black Jesus or an Asian Jesus or a Hispanic Jesus. There is only one Lord Jesus, he was God the Son. And every individual Christian, no matter where you are or who you are or where you came from, is in that one Jesus. We are not divided. And to allow division based on this world and its theories is cancer. So what's the eternal plan of God? What did God determine to do before God ever created Here's the eternal plan of God. God made humanity in his image for his glory. You all know that, right? Humanity rebelled against God and fell in sin. You all know that, right? The sinfulness of mankind, by the way, the rebellion, the refusal to obey God is what brought about the original division of nationalities at the Tower of Babel. And after that division, God chose, as he had always planned, one nation that would carry and protect the promise of God to send someone into the world to save his children. God insulated that people group that carried the promise. God isolated them in a sense from the rest of the world by giving them his holy law and holy practices. But then God brought the promised one into the world through that nation he had separated. Jesus died to save people from their sins and rose from the grave. And every person who comes to Jesus Christ in faith is forgiven. And in a stunning development, all the people who come to Jesus, no matter what their past, no matter what their nationality, is built by God into one brand new people, nation of God, for the glory of God. And so this is the eternal plan of God that Paul says this was a profound mystery that he just can't, I mean, he has gone from chapter 11 of verse 2 all the way to now saying this over and over and over and over again because he wants you to get it and see how glorious it is. Now, if you don't know Jesus, what do you do? You need to come to Jesus to find mercy. If you do know Jesus, you need to stand strong against anything that would divide you as a Christian from any other faithful Christian. And, as our point would emphasize, rejoice in the revelation of the gospel. Because the glorious plan of God was a veiled mystery until God chose to make it known. 
God revealed himself, and God revealed his plan through Jesus. God revealed everything you and I need to know and to live godly lives when he gave us his holy word through his apostles and prophets. The word of God that I'm talking about there, we call it the Bible. It's the Holy Scriptures. If you did not have the written down word of God, you would never know how to be forgiven by God. If you didn't have the Bible, you would not know how to please God after you've been forgiven. If you didn't have the Bible, you would not know anything about what to hope for in eternity. If you didn't have this word of God, you would be tempted to be like the rest of the world, dividing over ethnicities and holding grudges based on past wrongs and divisions. But only because of the revelation of God can we see the beautiful mystery of God opened up, revealed In Christ, we are reconciled both to God and to all peoples. So love, friends, the Word of God because it's what tells you this stuff. Learn the Word of God. Study the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. Proclaim the Word of God. Rejoice in the revelation of God in the gospel. Let's keep going. You still with me? Third point. Remain humble because of the gospel. Remain humble because of the gospel. Seven and eight. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, some people might think that the way Paul talks about having insight in verses four and five Sounds a little arrogant. After all, it's not well received in our world when a person claims to know things that nobody else knows about God, right? Those people annoy you, don't they, when they act like they know something about God nobody else gets? Watch out for those folks generally, by the way. But Paul's not full of himself. Paul shows us that he's not full of himself in the way that he talks about himself and the way that he learned what God taught him. Paul doesn't say, I chose to become a minister of the gospel because I knew that's what you people needed. Paul says he was made a minister by God. Paul's new status was a gift according to God's grace. Paul received this according to God's power. It was not according to Paul's goodness or accomplishment that he was used. And Paul was happy to have been given by God the mission of preaching Christ to the Gentiles. Paul, he would never have chosen that ministry for himself. I mean, before his salvation, Paul had been a Pharisee. He was as Jewish a Jewish man as anybody could be. But as we see in the books of Acts, or Galatians especially, Paul was sent out by God, and he was was called by God to take the gospel beyond physical Israel, he was used by God to preach the gospel to people who were like you and me. He preached the unsearchable, immeasurable, unfathomable, glorious, beautiful riches of Jesus Christ. He didn't preach himself. He saw himself as least. Paul preached Jesus. Now, just real quick, do you see why this would call us to remain humble because of the gospel? Are you saved? A few of you saved? Yes. Okay, good. Three, four of you. I'm glad about that. Praise God for that, right? That's good. But don't think for a moment that you're saved because you are somehow better than somebody else. 
Don't think that you're saved by some good action or piece of merit of your own. If you are saved, it is a grace gift given by God to you. And if you're saved, serve the Lord. And as you serve, remain humble. Because any ministry you have is a gift from God. I do not deserve to be allowed to preach the gospel on my own. That's a gift from God, one that I regularly question. But you don't deserve to be allowed to worship the Lord either. You don't deserve to be allowed to study the word. You don't deserve to be allowed to proclaim the gospel. But God has graciously given every last one of us a calling. We are called by God to proclaim his glory in a dark world. We're called by God to take the darkness and push it back to show the glory of Jesus, right? But we need to obey that call humbly knowing that our ministry, our mission, anything that we have that we do that is at all successful is a gift given us by the Lord. Fourth point now, last one. Recognize the centrality of the church in the gospel. It's a little bit long, but I couldn't think of a way to get an R in there without making it a little bit longer. Recognize the centrality of the church in the gospel. 9 through 13 says, And to bring to light, this is Paul talking about the, the good ministry that he's been given, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So, so Paul's talking here about the ministry God gave him. Paul's a lowly servant. And Paul is tasked by God to bring to light the mystery of God's eternal plan in Jesus. That plan was present, but hidden for ages. Now Paul gets to tell people what God's been up to the whole time. Paul gets to say, God created all things. God had a plan. God is perfectly carrying out that plan. And here's where I think this gets fun. We get a causal phrase. So that. Pay attention to words like that, friends. When, when you're reading the Bible, especially a letter like Ephesians, because Paul can go from this to this to this to this to this so quickly, Always take note, always highlight in some form for yourself words that explain why or that say that a why is coming. So, because, therefore, so that, in order that. Take note of those words because you're going to find something out. When God tells you a reason he did something, don't you think it's worth knowing? Because when you know why God did a thing, you know what motivates God. And that's good stuff. That's holiness right there. So what is just one of the reasons that Paul gives us here that he gets to proclaim the mystery of God's eternal plan? 
He does this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So take note right away, whatever Paul gets to do, what's going to happen is through the church. We're going to come back to that because it's really important. But what happens through the church? The manifold wisdom of God is made known. Now the word translated manifold there, it's a word that means many colored. It could, it, could be, it could be used for a rainbow. It could be used for that coat of many colors that Joseph had. The wisdom of God, Paul's telling you, is beautiful. It, it's broad. It, it, it's full of variety. It is unlimited in its beauty. The plan of God is so wonderful that it surpasses your imagination in its perfection. Well, to, you, to whom is this beautiful wisdom of God being made known? Fascinatingly here, in this instance, Paul says, the church is making the many-faceted wisdom of God known to the spirit world. Did you expect that one? The rulers and authorities in heavenly places, that's a reference to angelic beings. And we don't really know whether he's saying to just the good angels or whether, heck, all the angels and all the demons are going to learn this one. It doesn't really matter. The preaching of the gospel in the church is a proclamation of the glory of God for all to see, even here especially, the angels. Verse 11 reiterates, this is all the perfect plan of God. The creation, the fall, the singling out of Israel, the formation of a forgiven people in Christ. All of this has always been God's plan so that God might display his glory, his multifaceted, many-colored, breathtaking glory. God had a plan. God is accomplishing that plan. God's plan honors God. It honors the Lord. It amazes the angels. If we had time, we would look at, at 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, because it says almost identically the same thing. The apostles knew that the gospel is something angels are going, what in the world has been going on? Wow. And this plan of God leads to something wonderful for you and me, Christians. Verse 12 says that in Christ, Paul's talking about Jesus, and he just wants to point something out to you, Christians. In Christ, we have boldness and access to God. We saw the idea of access to God in chapter 2, verse 18 as well. Everyone forgiven in Jesus Christ through faith is free to come before the throne of God, even to do so boldly, not fearing the judgment of God. In Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we're made citizens of the kingdom of God. We're adopted into the family of God. We're welcomed into the presence of God. What a glorious joy this has to be for us. But you've got to be wondering, how in the world could a sinner like you or me be bold and confident approaching God. Doesn't that seem a little, a little, little much? Boldness? Confidence? This is simple. What has Jesus done? Jesus, if you are in Jesus, if you come to him for forgiveness, 
Jesus dresses you, clothes you in his perfection. Jesus has already perfectly taken the punishment and paid the appropriate penalty for every human sin that will ever be forgiven. And God has perfectly satisfied his wrath against our sin in Jesus. And because of that, we need not fear how God will receive us because God has no wrath remaining for the sins that have been forgiven in Jesus. The Father has for those in Christ only the very same love he has for Jesus the Son. This is what makes us sing about the amazing love of God that walks us out of a dungeon of death to boldly approach the eternal throne. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And because Paul gets to preach this glorious gospel of this welcoming into the family of God, into the presence of God, Paul wants to be sure that the Ephesians are not ashamed that he's in prison. Yeah, Paul's been made a prisoner. That's where he started this whole message, right? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's been a prisoner. He's okay with that. He's willing to suffer for the gospel. So long as the message of Jesus keeps going forward, Paul is willing to face hardships for people like the people in Ephesus. In fact, Paul says, you know what? My suffering is the glory of you Ephesians. Paul went to prison for preaching the gospel to Gentiles like the people in Ephesus. And that Paul would do that? That God would plan for Paul to go to jail to preach the gospel to the people in Ephesus? That speaks to the fact that God values those believers pretty highly. They were people once far from God. Paul went to jail to make sure the gospel got to them. Christians, we have been given evidence of our worth in what Jesus and the apostles and every faithful believer before us has suffered to get the gospel into our hands. And if other people have suffered to get the gospel into our hands, may we never lose the gospel. May we preach the gospel faithfully, even if it makes us suffer to get it to a next generation and a next generation. Beloved of the Father, purchased by Jesus, drawn to him by the Spirit. Now, remember I told you we'd go back to something? Back in the middle of this section, Paul says, I preach. My preaching glorifies God as the plan of God is made clear even to angels. Paul proclaims a gospel that gives us all kinds, all kinds of people access to God. But dear, dear friends, do not miss that at the heart of this work of God is the church. Recognize the centrality of the church in the gospel. It is not Paul as a lone wolf, as a free agent who shows the watching angels the glory of God in the gospel. It is not Paul as part of a parachurch ministry who takes the gospel into the nations. 
God's glorious plan is the creation of a new people for himself. People saved out of every nation, and the people God saves out of every nation become his holy church. And then we unite in communities as local churches. And there is no more important institution on the planet than the genuine church of the Lord Jesus. The witness of the glory of God for the world and the angels to see is the mission of the church. Not some non-church entity. It is the mission of the church to get the glory out where people and angels see it. We gather to proclaim the glory of God. We sing for the glory of God. We unite as one family, no matter where you came from, for the glory of God. Regardless of your, of your past, regardless of anything, we unite for the glory of God. We participate in Lord's Supper for the glory of God. We baptize to the glory of God as we declare the perfect gospel of our glorious God we share the gospel with the lost world out there and those who may come join us in here for the glory of God as the church. So Christians, I would ask you, please recognize the centrality of the church in the gospel. Your participation in the church is not a side issue or a secondary part of your life. Obeying the Lord and living as part of the household of faith is central to your participation in the eternal mission of God. So do not neglect the church. Do not forsake gathering together. Do not close off your life to other people in the church. Love the Lord well by loving and giving and serving and sacrificing in the local church. God has a glorious and eternal plan. And it shows all the watching universe how great God is and you and I exist. You were given blood and bone and breath so that you can be a part of what God has been doing from before the beginning. So yes, readily suffer for the gospel. Rejoice in the revelation of the gospel. Remain humble because of the gospel. Recognize the centrality of the church in the gospel. And if you don't yet know Jesus, and some of you may not, Repent and find salvation in the gospel. You need forgiveness, and you can have the forgiveness of God only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died to pay for the sins of anyone he will forgive. Jesus rose from the grave. So turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus. Ask him for mercy, and you will be saved and find your place in the eternal plan of God. Will you pray with me, friends? Father, there's a lot here. I pray you help us get it. Give us gospel, give us hope, give us a right understanding of the importance of the church. Show us your goodness and your glory. Make us faithful. Lord, I would ask you just keep 
this perfect message working in our hearts. Be magnified. Teach us, grow us, comfort us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.